You're listening to the Catholic Fragments Podcast, where we explore the treasures of Catholicism, the fullness of truth revealed in Jesus Christ and His Church. I'm your host, Dr. Donald Wallenfang, and I invite you to join me in gathering up the fragments of the truth that sets us free. pray in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. A reading from the book of Genesis, chapter 17. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, I am the God Almighty. Walk in my presence and be blameless. Between you and me I will establish my covenant, and I will multiply you exceedingly. Abram fell face down. And God said to him, For my part, here is my covenant with you. You are to become the father of a multitude of nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham. For I am making you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fertile. I will make nations of you. Kings will stem from you. I will maintain my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout the ages as an everlasting covenant to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Welcome everyone to this episode of the Catholic Fragments Podcast. I'm Dr. Donald Wallenfang, and it is a great responsibility for me to point to the Jewish roots of Christianity, especially in the wake of the Jewish Holocaust of the 20th century, and so many other senseless movements of anti-Semitism, through the world of recent history. To say the word Catholicism is, at the same time, to say the word Judaism. It must always be remembered that Jesus is Jewish. The roots of Christianity forever will be Jewish. In a podcast dedicated to gathering up the fragments of Catholicism, we do well to return to the Jewish origin of the Catholic faith not only for the sake of understanding the Catholic faith better, but also to live in permanent solidarity with the Jewish people. So we ask in this episode, what is the exact relationship between Judaism and Christianity? The main document I want to turn to is from the Second Vatican Council, which occurred between the years 1962 and 1965. It's a sui generis document, a -a one-of-a-kind document, unprecedented in the whole history of the ecumenical councils of the church, that is, the gathering of bishops from around the world in union with the Bishop of Rome, the Pope. The Second Vatican Council was the largest by far, by about ten times, as many bishops as ever had met together in a single ecumenical 
Council. Over 2,500 bishops from around the world, most of who were not from Europe or North America, gathered at the Vatican over the course of these three years to publish some very important documents. One of them was called Nostra Aetate. Nostra Aetate is the Latin title of the document, which begins with the English words, In Our Time. This document is on the relation of the church with non-Christian religions. It talks about Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, Judaism, specifically the main religious traditions of the world. And it's very short, actually. It was published by Pope Paul VI in 1965, toward the end of the council. It only has 15 footnotes, and it's, I believe, the shortest document of the Council of the major documents of the Council. But it's such a huge beginning of a greatly important task in the life of the church today, which is interreligious dialogue. So in today's podcast, we want to reference this document, but again, we must recall the tragic Jewish Holocaust of the 20th century, which occurred especially over the course of the years 1941 and 1945 in which six million Jewish men, women, and children were murdered across German-occupied Europe simply for being Jewish. This was around two-thirds of Europe's Jewish population, and it was a product of eugenic ideology, this worldview that elevates one race of people above others, or certain races of people above other ones, Altogether, it is an inexplicable genocide, this attempted extermination of an entire ethnic group of people. It is sickening. It's hard to think about, even imagine what went on only decades ago in these countries that were historically Christian. As one of my favorite Jewish philosophers, Emmanuel Levinas, says, this paradox of experience... I always said to myself that the executioners of Auschwitz, Protestants or Catholics, had all probably done their catechism. It's inexcusable, inexplicable. And so I want to dwell on the soberness of these historical events because we must remember what happened here. Christian theology, for instance, is forever changed because of what happened here. We cannot go about Catholic Christian theology the same. But there's an imperative at stake where we need to return to our Jewish roots and live them actively, to live them with a great intentionality of solidarity with the Jewish people. So what does this document, Nostra Aetate, have to say about the relationship between Judaism and Christianity. Many wonderful things. The first paragraph we read, One is the community of all peoples. One their origin. For God made the whole human race to live over the face of the earth. One also is their final goal. God. His providence. His manifestations of goodness. His saving design extended to all men until that time when the elect will be united in the holy city, the city ablaze with the glory of God, where the nations will walk in his light. So it begins with the truth 
of the unity of humanity around the whole world throughout history. We form one humanity, not two or more humanities. One humanity. One humanity. It's so important. It's this kind of anthropology-first approach to the questions. Let's begin with what we have in common as human beings, that we are all human beings, and that we come from the same origin and share the same divinely appointed destiny, at least from the side of God. As we read in First Timothy, that God wills that all be saved and come to the knowledge of truth. This is what God wants. Yet he leaves it up to our created freedom, our free will, to say yes or no. So it's a real possibility to say no to God's gift of salvation. And those who perpetrated the Jewish Holocaust appear to have said no. But this episode is about saying yes. Saying yes to God. Saying yes to the solidarity of our humanity around the world, no matter what ethnicity or religious tradition one has been raised, in which one continues to live. The second paragraph of this document we read, The Catholic Church rejects nothing that is true and holy in these non-Christian religions. She regards with sincere reverence those ways of conduct and of life, those precepts and teachings which, though differing in many aspects from the ones she holds and sets forth, nonetheless often reflect a ray of that truth which enlightens all men. Indeed, she proclaims and ever must proclaim Christ, the way, the truth, and the life, in whom men may find the fullness of religious life, in whom God has reconciled all things to himself. So this is a profound statement of the bishops of the global church in this document of the Second Vatican Council that the church regards with sincere reverence those ways of conduct and life, precepts and teaching, which, though differing in many aspects from those of the church, nonetheless, those of other non-Christian religious traditions, those that do reflect a ray of the truth, who is, we believe to be Christ as his followers, what's happening in the non-Christian religions is they reflect rays of the truth of Christ that enlightens all people. And the church holds these rays of truth, these reflections of the truth of Christ, with sincere reverence, appreciation, esteem. Then paragraph four of this document we read, specifically now talking about the relationship between Christianity and Judaism. Thus the Church of Christ acknowledges that according to God's saving design, the beginnings of her faith and her election are found already among the Jewish patriarchs. Moses and the prophets. She professes that all who believe in Christ, Abraham's sons according to faith, are included in the same patriarch's call, the call we heard in the opening prayer, the call of Abraham and his wife Sarah, and likewise that the salvation of the church is mysteriously foreshadowed by the chosen people's exodus from the land of bondage. The church, therefore, cannot forget that she received the revelation of the Old Testament through the people with whom God, in his inexpressible mercy, concluded the ancient covenant. Nor can she forget that she draws sustenance from the root of that well-cultivated olive tree, unto which have been grafted the wild shoots, the Gentiles. Indeed, the church believes that by its cross, Christ, our peace, reconciled Jews and Gentiles. 
making both one in himself. The church keeps ever in mind the words of the apostle about his kinsmen from Romans chapter 9, speaking of the Jewish people. Theirs is the sonship and the glory and the covenants and the law and the worship and the promises. Theirs are the fathers and from them is the Christ according to the flesh. And St. Paul himself writing this is Jewish too. The son of the Virgin Mary is Christ. The Virgin Mary herself is also Jewish. The church also recalls that the apostles, the church's mainstay and pillars, as well as most of the early disciples who proclaimed Christ's gospel to the world, sprang from the Jewish people. So this is the truth about Jesus, Mary, Joseph, the apostles, so many of the early disciples, the vast majority of which are Jewish. And it's very important that the church recall her Jewish roots and that there's something of permanence about Judaism within Christianity. This is the fullness of the truth about Christianity. We have to come back to this fact again and again. We read a little more in Nostra Aetate. Furthermore, in her rejection of every persecution against any man, the church, mindful of the patrimony she shares with the Jews, and moved not by political reasons, but by the gospel's spiritual love, decries hatred, persecutions, displays of anti-Semitism directed against Jews at any time and by anyone. So decry means to reject this hatred and persecution of the Jewish people. Any displays of anti-Semitism, hatred of Jewish people, the church deplores, decries. And this is an important message for our time. Sometimes people in Christianity get the misguided notion that it was the Jews and only the Jews that put Christ to death. No, this document talks further about it was our sins. It was the world's sins that put Jesus to death. It was both Jews and Gentiles that put Jesus to death. Pontius Pilate and the Romans were not Jewish and they had just as much a hand in it as the Jewish leaders. But theologically speaking, it's all of our sins that put Jesus to death. And so in many recent documents of the church, they're careful to point out this truth, that no people group is scapegoated when it comes to the world's problems, when it comes to the death of Jesus, and so on. We are all human beings after all, and this is so important for us to live into this truth. Finally, the last paragraph, or section 5 of Nostra Aetate, this declaration of the world's bishops on non-Christian religions, they write this, We cannot truly call on God, the Father of all, if we refuse to treat in a brotherly way any man, male or female, created as he is in the image of God, Man's relation to God the Father and his relation to men, his brothers, are so linked together that scripture says, he who does not love does not know God. No foundation therefore remains for any theory or practice that leads to discrimination between man and man or people and people, so far as their human dignity and the rights flowing from it are concerned. The church reproves as foreign to the mind of Christ any discrimination against men or harassment of them because of their race, color, condition of life, or religion. And we could add some other 
qualifiers onto those sources of harassment and discrimination in our time today. The church reproves all of these. On the contrary, following in the footsteps of the holy apostles Peter and Paul, the sacred synod, Vatican II, ardently implores the Christian faithful to maintain good fellowship among the nations, and if possible, to live for their part in peace with all men, so that they may truly be sons of the Father who is in heaven. These are fantastic truths that the bishops of the church have handed on to the entire church and calls on the whole church to live these. Even recently, Pope Francis, in his 2013 apostolic exhortation, The Joy of the Gospel, writes that the church is enriched when she receives the values of Judaism. There exists a rich complementarity. So this is the message of this podcast episode today. We have to remember that Christianity is, first of all, a reform movement within Judaism. It's an outgrowth of Judaism. According to the British scholar of comparative religion, John Hinnells, he writes, quote, In practice, the divisions between religions are sometimes artificial. It is not always the case that to believe one religion is right necessarily involves believing that another is altogether wrong. Religion must sometimes be studied as a regional phenomenon rather than under the conventional headings of isms. End quote. And so it is the case, for instance, with the Judeo-Christian tradition, in which two distinct lines of tradition evolved from the common wellspring of monotheistic and ethical faith. We recall the Shema prayer of Judaism, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, Shema Yisrael, Adonai Elohinu, Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. The truth is, as Hinnells goes on to say, that there are few cold facts in the study of religions. All explanation involves interpretation. Reminiscent of the Talmudic method of Judaism, British scholar Hinnells suggests that interreligious dialogue reveals the play of truth through dialectical confrontation. Jewish Midrash, this art of biblical scriptural interpretation, probes the truth of a text by keeping the dialectical dance of interpretation alive. Not content with simple face value meanings alone, rabbinic hermeneutics, that is this art of interpretation, unearths allegorical, parabolic, and even mystical meanings generated by the text through the interpretive stages of Peshat, Remez, Derash, and Sod different interpretive stages of the sacred text in Jewish Midrash. Talmudic method refuses to let the ambiguity of problems and the dialectics of truth resolve into facile solutions and singular meanings. Instead, as Jewish philosopher Emmanuel Levinas insists, the Talmud signifies an eternal dialogue taking place within human consciousness. And the Talmud itself is... The redacted or written traditions of the Jewish rabbis concerning Jewish laws and customs. And it becomes this conflict of interpretations between the rabbis themselves, which is something very beautiful that generates a polyphony of meaning and truth comes into view and comes into the ear and comes into the heart. 
Truth is spoken and heard through the plurality of conversation and unresolved dialectical discourse. Levinas observes that the relation between the same and the other, upon which we seem to impose such extraordinary conditions, is language, and that truth arises where a being separated from the other is not engulfed in him, but speaks to him. Language constitutes the insoluble bridge between the self and the other. It is the field of truth-telling that maintains the irreducibility of the other to the same. Even within human consciousness, truth is announced through the infinite play of discourse between interlocutors, at least one of which is always other than the self. Levinas applies this hermeneutic of dialectical truth to the diversity of civilizations emerging throughout history and to the human vocation to tolerance. He writes that we can tolerate the pluralism of great civilizations and even understand why they cannot merge. The very nature of truth explains how this is impossible. Truth manifests itself in a way that appeals to an enormous number of human possibilities and through them a whole range of histories, traditions, and approaches. All this is to say that truth cannot be packaged exclusively within a monocultural totality of expressions. Instead, truth is expressed through an unlimited variety of signs, symbolic orders, and modes of communication. And some final thoughts about interreligious dialogue on the whole, and some of these thoughts and more are contained in the book I published, co-edited with Dr. John Cavardini from the University of Notre Dame, the book called Evangelization as Interreligious Dialogue. Some of these thoughts in the introduction I composed for that volume, as well as the chapter seven of mine in the volume. So just to close with some of these final thoughts. This insight that truth is expressed in this whole unlimited variety of signs, symbolic orders, and modes of communication is crucial for the formidable task of interreligious dialogue on a global scale. According to the nature of truth itself, there must be an inherent plurality of distinct civilizations and even religious traditions. The saturating host of religious traditions articulates the impossibility of manipulating truth as truth in its global epiphany of a united polyphony of voices. Today we encounter a genealogy of world religions which have evolved over the course of time in various geographical and cultural centers. For example, Judaism and Christianity from the Mediterranean region, Zoroastrianism and Islam from Arabia and the Middle East. Hinduism, Buddhism, Jainism, Sikhism from India, Taoism and Confucianism from China, and Shintoism from Japan. Several other religious traditions could be mentioned as well, but the point here is to set forth the first principle of interreligious dialogue as inspired by Emmanuel Levinas. Truth is consequently experienced as a dialogue, which does not reach a conclusion but constitutes the very life of truth. Even us followers of Jesus Christ experience Christ through dialogue. Oftentimes, he asks us questions too. We ask him questions, he asks us questions. The God revealed in Jesus Christ is the God of dialogue, not the God of coercion, not the God of some political ideology, the God of loving and merciful and open dialogue. 
This unresolved dialogue of truth prevents the closure and falsification of truth. If the dialogue of truth comes to an abrupt end with nothing left to say, what becomes of truth as a living and universal summons to rediscover it over and over again, let alone as a perennial call to action and responsibility. We experience truth through dialogue. All of this is to say, rest assured, I am not advocating any kind of religious relativism in all these things I'm saying. I'm entering into dialogue with Judaism, above all in this episode, as well as non-Christian religions to some small degree. I hope to do more episodes on this topic in the future. But I am not in any way an advocate for relativism or what's called religious pluralism, as if all religious traditions were like spokes of a wagon wheel that all led to the same center in one way or another. No, that's not it at all. When we enter into dialogue about truth, we make distinctions. And we always talk with one another with our discourse anchored in the principle of non-contradiction. That is to say that something is not what it is and not what it is at the same time. So, for example, either Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior of all people of all times and places, or he's not. Either Jesus Christ is God become flesh, or he's not. Either God exists, or God doesn't exist. It's a lot of either-ors when it comes to truth, on some questions, on other questions in terms of how this truth is expressed within different cultures with different languages, here we have a lot of variation that doesn't contradict, but that forms a harmonious unity leading to the truth. The sense that truth is symphonic overall. This is a Catholic thing. The symphonic nature of truth the harmonious unity of peoples through this process of enculturation in which the word of God takes on flesh in the variety of cultures throughout the world. This is what is meant by the Catholic Church, by Catholicism. So interreligious dialogue itself is an important moment within Catholicism, within seeking truth, in which all of ourselves today because of internet and travel and everything else, find ourselves to be global citizens in a very cosmopolitan context. So the bishops of the church are showing us that we are called to genuine dialogue and to have the courage to enter the dialogue, to remain in the dialogue, to listen to all, to be in solidarity with all of our fellow human beings around the world. So may we contemplate the uniqueness of the Jewish people within the history of salvation never forgetting the timelessness of Torah and the summons to ethical responsibility, one for the other. And may we remain witnesses to the unity of the one human family that has been loved into being by one God and Father of all. Thank you for joining me on the Catholic Fragments podcast, where you are equipped to think toward the whole to pray from the heart, and to live as a witness.